Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew 27, as we continue our study of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. And we're at the end, basically, of this. Jesus has died on the cross to pay for the sin of the world. He has laid down his life. He has humbled himself to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And as we think about it, Jesus Christ is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all sin, as he said, it is finished. The Greek word is telestai, which meant it is completed. It means paid in full, right to the end. So Jesus Christ has done it all. He's paid for everything. And so uh, we can rejoice that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sins for every human being, past, present, future, every sin, past, present, future, has been paid for by our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is finished. Well, this morning, we're going to meet a man. His name is Joseph. He's, he's, he's from Arimathea. We'll talk more about that in a little bit later. He comes to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. And we might say, well, why would he want the body of Jesus? And where were the disciples? Why didn't they come back and, and get the, you know, the apostles? Why didn't they come get the body of Jesus? Well, we're going to see the burial of the Lord, the Son of God. And as we do that, let me, let me just raise some questions for us to think about. Well, first of all, who is at the tomb? And who buried Jesus? And what were the plans of these women? What were their plans? And what day is this, and we'll see how it all ties together. There's so much in this passage, and as I said earlier, we're going to be in Matthew 27, but we're also going to go over to uh, John chapter 19, if you just want to kind of put a place there, because we're going to be going back and forth a little bit as we see this final part. Well, it, most people like secrets. I mean, when you get a secret, it seems like it's something special. You can get to a little child, and you go, hey, come here, I've I got a secret for you. Let me tell you a secret. And, and sometimes in just life, somebody might come up to you, maybe in your business, say, uh, come into the office for a minute, but there's something we want to talk to you about. Uh, this is not for everybody else. We just want you to know about it. It makes you sort of sometimes feel special. You know, as a pastor, I have to be real careful because people come to me, and they tell me things, and I, I can't tell a soul. And so sometimes, you know, secrets are secrets, and there, there are some things uh, that when you think about it, should not be kept secret. Well, what are we talking about? Well, the truth is this. When we have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we're not to keep our salvation a secret. You think about this. We know Christ. We have eternal life. And as we go through life, do we let people know? Do we tell people that we've put our faith in Jesus and that we have eternal life? And we're not to keep that a secret. And this morning, the reason I bring that up, we're going to meet this man named Joseph. Well, everybody knows him as Joseph of Arimathea. But here's something that's amazing. He's called a disciple of Christ, but he's called a secret disciple of Jesus. And what does that mean? He kept it a secret. And let me ask you this. Why did he keep it a secret? And what does that mean? He had put his faith in Jesus, believed that he was the Messiah and the King and all that, and yet he didn't tell other people. Well, what about us? The people that know you, the people that hang around with you, the people in your neighborhood, the people that you work with or you go to school with, do they know you? Do they know you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, think about that. So our relationship with Jesus Christ does not need to be a secret. So as we continue this morning, uh, we, we saw last time that Jesus died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, of course, he laid down his life. But some unique things happened. In fact, some supernatural things happened. And I, I remind you that the veil was torn in the temple, showing the way to God. And we talked about it last week. A lot of people didn't understand this. or Some people had never heard this. But the temple in Jerusalem, there was a front room called the Holy Place and the back room called the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was in the back room and there was a big curtain, a big veil. It was very, very thick. Some think it was at least this thick, <clears throat> and it was big. 
And it showed, really, that the holy place was the front room and the holy of holies was the back room where God was. And it showed, basically, you could not go to God. When Jesus paid all the sins of all the world, the veil tore from the top to the bottom, showing that the way was now open to God. The second thing, there was an earthquake, of course, and it was the the rocks split and graves were open. And we talked about that last week. Bodies were raised and they came up out of the grave after Christ's resurrection. So that was something big. And this centurion there and some other people with him, we'll just read that again today, he called Jesus the Son of God. People were watching. There was a lot of sorrow. And then we're going to see this morning that there's more scripture fulfilled even after his death, talked about bones and piercing and, and those kind of things. So I want you to get that. I want to remind you of what happened. Remember, Jesus was put on the cross at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he hung on the cross from 9 to 12. He said a few things like, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing today. You'll be with me in paradise, those kind of things. And then at, from 12 to 3, he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was when he took the sins of the world upon himself. That's when he died spiritually. He was separated from the Father. And we know that at the very end, he came back and said, it is finished. And Christ, and then he died, and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus laid down his life for us. He finished his work to pay for the sins of the world. And that's one thing you cannot take for granted, that as we look at the passage, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we realize that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has paid for all sin. Sin is not the issue. People say, well, you need to deal with your sin. Jesus Christ has already dealt with your sin. He's the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the entire world. The issue is faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ to give you eternal life? Have you trusted in him as your savior, the one who gives eternal life? That's the issue now. And so Jesus paid for it all. It's done. He's laid down his life. And this morning, as we continue in our study, in Matthew, we're going to look at two different things. We're going to see the response by those at the cross, verses 54 through 56. And then we're going to see the burial of Jesus. And as I said earlier, we'll go back and forth. So if you want to hold a place in John chapter 19, because we're going to be going there as well. Well, let's start with the response. Those at the cross, what happened? Look at verse 54 of Matthew 27. It says, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, remember, a centurion was a Roman soldier, powerful soldier. He controlled over 100 soldiers, so there were over 100 soldiers. He was there, and if you know that we talked about this when crucified Jesus, that when a person was crucified, it usually four Roman soldiers were with them. They put the person on the cross, and then those four soldiers divided whatever that person had. And so you have the four soldiers, and you have the centurion. And so it says, and the centurion and those who were with him, that's the other four soldiers, keeping over Jesus. When they saw all these things, when they saw the earthquake, when they saw what was happening, they, they, were, they were scared, they were frightened, and they looked at this and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. He actually says he was the Son of God. If you read one of the other Gospels, he says he was a righteous man. He doesn't just mean he was a good man. Righteousness, he's saying he's the righteous one, the, 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 the Son of God. And so basically he probably said both things. He probably said he was a righteous man. He is the Son of God. Matthew records one. One of the other Gospels records the others. And, and so let me ask this question because I know you, but I also know that there are people watching. What is your response to Jesus Christ? I mean, this centurion said he is the son of God. He recognized who he was when he saw what had happened. He knew that they'd put Jesus on the cross. There's a sign above it that says Jesus is the king of the Jews. He heard what he said about today you'll be with me in paradise. He heard all those things that Jesus said. He said he was the son of God. 
I hope and pray that every one of you in this room and all those who are watching, that you know Jesus Christ, that you understand that he indeed is the Son of God, that he is the one that died on the cross and paid for sin, and that you have trusted in him to give you eternal life. You have trusted in him to save you in that sense. Well, from that point, Matthew is going to tell us who was there after Jesus Christ died. And so I want you to look down a little bit after the centurion and those with him said he's the Son of God. Verse 55 says, Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. So there was many women there. You may may not have understood this. Jesus was considered a rabbi. He was considered a teacher. The word rabbi actually means my master, but it came to mean teacher. So if you call somebody rabbi, you call him teacher. Jesus went around teaching. He had 12 men that he called disciples and apostles. Then there were all kind of people that followed him around. And there were a whole group of women that followed him around. They started with him in Galilee, and they've come all the way down. They were there to meet needs, to do things, maybe give them food. No telling what they were, but that they, they were with Jesus Christ. And they followed. And so it says, many women who were there looking on from a distance who had Follow Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. And then he's going to list who they are. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, who is these people? First of all, Mary Magdalene. Magdala. Magdala was a town. So say Mary Magdalene, it's Mary from Magdala. Mary Magdalene, uh, the word is, or the truth is, you read some other passages in the Gospels, that Jesus had, she had demons inside of her, and Jesus cast the demons out. There's another lady, her name is also Mary, and she had two two sons, Joseph and James the Less. Now he's called, in this passage, just called James, he's actually called James the Just Less when the least come, come, because in those days, if there were two people named James, and one was shorter than the other, they called this one James the Less. So I wouldn't primarily be James the less whenever it comes out. But so this is Mary and jo- and she has Joseph and James the less. And then there's another one that just says the mother of the sons of Zebedee and the sons of Zebedee are James and John, which we know them. But her name, she's not listed here, but her name is Salome. And so you have these three women, they're at, they're at the cross. And so it says among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's Salome. And they're all there. Now, you could raise the question, well, where is, where is Mary, the mother of Jesus? Remember, she's there earlier, and while she was there, Jesus on the cross looked at her and said, woman, that's your son. She pointed, he pointed to John, or he nodded at John, I'm sure, and then John, he said to John, that's your mother, and probably John has gone and taken Mary away so she won't have to see the end of everything. And uh, so we'll see what happens as we'll see a little bit later on. So there's the women. They're all there. And, and let me give you this idea. Look, look at this. This is Luke 23, 48. It says, And all the crowd who came together for this spectacle, and when they observed what had happened, they began to return, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So they all saw this. This was a horrible time. I mean, when you think about it from a human standpoint... Jesus, who was the greatest person who ever lived, and if you looked at him as a normal human being, you would say, gosh, he's the greatest person who ever lived. He was the nicest person. He did miracles. He healed people. He did everything. Of course, he's the son of God. He's perfect. He's the perfect son of God. And yet he would have been put on the cross, and he's died. He was beaten. He was crushed. He was wounded. And from a human standpoint, we say, this is so bad. But from the God standpoint, this is Jesus, the Son of God, humbling himself to be obedient to death, even the death on the cross. He is dying there for us. Now, we're going to meet somebody 
Here he comes, and we're going to meet a man by the name of Joseph. Look at verse 57. It says, now, when it was evening, now, when it was evening, it was just about to get, and I want you to understand that the Jewish calendar, that when it gets 6 o'clock in the evening, it becomes the next day, because their nights were first. They got that from God, because if you read the book of Genesis, it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So the evening in the Jewish calendar comes first. So when it was going to get the evening, it was going to be the next day. And we're going to find that the next day was a Sabbath day. We'll talk more about that in just a second. And it says that when it was evening, it's just about time for the day to be through, there came a rich man from Arimathea, his name was Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. So if we stop right there, all we know is this man comes, his name is Joseph from Arimathea. Arimathea is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. And he comes, and all it says, he came and he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, we need to get a little bit more information. So if you would hold your place and turn over to John 19. So flip over in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, almost to the very end of the Gospel of John, to John 19, and we're going to start at verse 31. And let me read this to you, and you'll get a little bit of history. You'll see how things fit together. John 19, verse 31, it says, Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. Now, I want you to understand that uh, Jesus, I've got here, Jesus died on Passover. So Jesus is on the cross on the 14th day of the month, which is the first day of the, uh, of the 14th day of the month was called Passover. Jesus dies on Passover. And in the evening, when it comes evening, it becomes the next day. The next day is the 15th of the month. That makes sense. And then it is called the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That day is always a Sabbath day. It doesn't matter. If the 14th hand it was on a Wednesday, the 15th, that next Thursday, was also a Sabbath day. Sabbath just means rest. You know that they were to work six days and rest on the seventh. The first day of the week is Sunday. Last day of the week is Saturday. It was always a Sabbath. But sometimes there was a day during the week that was a Sabbath. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the very next day, is, called, is a Sabbath day. So notice the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, it was getting ready for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that the bodies would not may, remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a high day. They asked Pilate to break their legs so they could be taken away. See, they didn't want them on the cross on the Sabbath day because if it got to the Sabbath day, they couldn't do any work. They couldn't go get their bodies off of the cross. They would have to wait. So they said, look, just, and they went to Pilate and said, could you break their legs so they'll die quicker and we'll get them off the cross before the Sabbath? Now, you might ask a question. What do you mean breaking their legs? How does that help? You remember on the cross, they're out like this. Their feet are nailed together as well. And there's a little platform that they could put their feet on and push themselves up. And as they got tired, they would come down. And eventually, if you couldn't hold yourself up anymore, you'd suffocate. That's how you died from crucifixion. Sometimes it took a long time. If you broke their legs, they couldn't push up. If they couldn't push up, they would die much faster. So they decided, look, let's, let them, let's get them dead before the Sabbath day so we can get the bodies off of the cross. So the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, they didn't want the bodies remaining on the cross on the Sabbath. Remember? And, and let me just go back and say this. Throughout history, the tradition is that Jesus died on Friday because the next day was a Sabbath day. 
But that doesn't mean he died on Friday because he could have died on Wednesday and the next day was a Sabbath day. In fact, according to Matthew 12, 38 through 40, it says, as Jonah, Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You can't get three days and three nights if Jesus died on Friday. I don't think he died on Friday. I think he died earlier in the week. That's not the issue this morning. I just want you to understand that being a Sabbath day the next day didn't mean it was Saturday. It meant that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Sabbath day. And so they said, let's get them off. Let's break their legs. They can't push up and they'll die. And that, that's the plan. And so look at verse 32. The others came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But... Coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So I want you to understand, they broke the legs of the thieves, but they didn't break the, Jesus' legs. And you could say, so what? What difference does it make? We're going to see in just a minute, it makes a difference whether Jesus' legs were broken or not. Jesus has already dead, so they didn't break his legs. But notice what happened. But coming to Jesus, when they, this is verse 33, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but... One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, one of the soldiers, since he was already dead, said, well, let me make sure he's dead. So he got a spear and stuck it up in his side, and it opened it up, and blood and liquid, fluid, water, everything fell out because he was already dead. And so uh, Jesus had already given up his life. If you remember, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus gave up his life. And so it says that uh, they, they pierced him with a spear. And then John had come back. Apparently John had taken Mary away and now he's come back. And look what John writes because John wrote the gospel of John. He says, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may all may believe. John is saying, I saw this. I saw him break the legs. I saw him that they didn't break Jesus' legs. I saw when that soldier stabbed Jesus in the side. I saw that. And you and I could say, well, so why are you telling us this? Well, look at the next verse. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Do you understand that this fulfills scripture? When the soldier pierced his side, it fulfills scripture. Notice, no bone shall be broken. Psalm 32 verse 20, also going back to Exodus or Leviticus, and then Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12.10 says, they will see the one whom they pierce. I want you to understand something that is amazing. They will see the one they pierce. Psalm 22 talks about when they pierced him and they saw him on the cross. Zechariah 12.10 says, they're going to see him coming in the clouds, the one who is pierced. So Psalm 22 is his first coming, and Zechariah 12 is his second coming, and both times they will see the one who they pierce. So it is important that they didn't break Jesus' bones because the prophecy was no bones will be broken. It's important that he was pierced because the prophecy is they will look on him who they have pierced. So amazing truth. So let's go back to Matthew. Flip back over to Matthew 
And we'll see what happens. Go back to verse 57 again. And I want to go back to this man named Joseph. We've just got a little information that's happened in between. So think what's happened. Jesus has died on the cross. The other two are still there. They decide to get the bodies off before the Sabbath day. So they ask him to break the legs. They break the legs. They don't break Jesus because he's already dead. They stab Jesus. And John says, I saw all this and it fulfilled prophecies that there would be no bones broken and they would look on him who they pierced. Now let's look at this man named Joseph, okay? And we're going to see the, the burial of Jesus. Look again at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, this is a sad time. If you'd been there, uh, we would all be upset. We wouldn't know what to do, some of us. We would all be confused. We would have thought Jesus was the Messiah. We thought he was the Savior. Uh, and then he, he's dead. And and here's some questions that I have. This man named Joseph of Arimathea is going to come ask for the body of Jesus. Where are the disciples? Why aren't they asking for the body of Jesus? You know why he's asking for the body. Because in that day and time, if you were crucified, you were like a criminal. And when they took you off the cross, they threw you in the Kidron Valley. They just threw you in a place, a mass grave with a whole bunch of other bodies. And that's what they're going to do with Jesus' body. But this man named Joseph is going to come say, I'll take it. And, and Pilate's going to give it to him, and we'll see what happens. So it says he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, uh, we know he was rich. He was from Arimathea. Arimathea is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, let's talk about him because each of the Gospels tells us a little bit about this man. The Gospel of Matthew says he was wealthy. He was rich. Mark tells us that he was a member of the council. You know, there's the thing called the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 most powerful men in Israel. He was one of those. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's what Mark says, which means he was a believer in the Messiah. Third, Luke tells us that he was a member of the council, but he also says that he was a believer and he did not consent to the plan. You remember what the plan? They voted to crucify Jesus. They voted to turn him over to Pilate and this man, Joseph of Arimathea, did not vote for that. He didn't vote for it. And then the last thing is the Gospel of John tells us he was a secret disciple. A secret disciple. And, and so that's kind of amazing because some people say, well, you, you can't be a secret disciple. You can't believe in Jesus and not tell people. Yeah, yeah, you can. See, salvation is a gift. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on your faithfulness. It's not based on, on you're going to do all the right things. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. And he was a believer, but he didn't tell anybody. And, and why? Let, let, let's look at what we know about him. He was righteous. He was wealthy. He was a Sanhedrin. He had uh, not voted for the plan. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. Listen, the bottom line was this. He was a prominent person in the religious leaders, and he had believed in Jesus, and he didn't tell anybody. He probably was afraid that if he told them, they'd kick him out of the Sanhedrin. He has kept it hidden up to this point. But let me tell you this, by going and asking for the body, it changes everything. He is showing that he cares about Jesus. He is showing that he wants to be with Jesus, okay? And so now he, people will look at this and go, he went and got the body of Jesus. Why did he do that? By getting the body, he is telling others that he believes in Jesus. So let me ask a question. Are we secret disciples? Do we tell others we have trusted Jesus Christ to give us eternal life? Can't see that a secret. It's so easy when we're around all the same people a lot that we never say anything and some people never know. We need to tell people. So look what happened. Go back to Matthew 27, verse 58. It says, this man went to Pilate 
and as for the body of Jesus. Now, most of you have been studying the Bible with us, uh, but, you know, Pilate was the Roman governor, and, and he was the one that basically had Jesus crucified because the Jewish people wanted that. So he went back to Pilate and said, could he have the body? And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, if you read the other Gospels, when he went, he was a rich man, so he had access to Pilate. He went to Pilate and said, I like the body of Jesus. And Pilate actually said, you can't... Uh, He's already dead. He, he said, give me one of the soldiers. He called one of the soldiers, and he said, is he dead? And he said, yeah, he's dead. He went, okay, well, you can have the body. He gave it to him. And so he gave him the body. The uh, man went to Pilate, asked for the body. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Wow. Now, some could say, why do you want the body of Jesus? Is he important to you? Why? He's taking a risk by doing this. We're going to find that there's more there to it. So let's do this. Hold your place in Matthew and turn back to John 19. Flip back over. This time we're going to be a little further down. We're going to look at verse 38. John 19. We're going to look at verses 38 and 39. And I want you to see what happens. I hope you're there. Turn there. John 19 verse 38. It basically says this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. So he came and asked for the body. Now we've already seen that. And so we say, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich ruler of the Jews, has asked for the body of Jesus. But that's not all. There's more. Look at the next verse. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Nicodemus comes. Now you may say, who is this Nicodemus guy? If you remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was called the teacher of Israel. If you remember back in John chapter 3, this man named Nicodemus, who was a ruler, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was a wealthy man, who was a powerful man, who was called the teacher of Israel, meaning he was the most important teacher in Israel. He came to Jesus by night because he saw Jesus doing all these things, and he said to Jesus, you must be from God because nobody can keep doing the miracles that you're doing unless they're from God. And Jesus said to him, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't even understand that. He said, you can't be born when you're old. You can't go back up in your mother and come back out. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he taught Nicodemus from Numbers 21, and he taught about faith in the Messiah for salvation. So Nicodemus left that night in John chapter 3. We don't know what happened, but as I look at this passage, he's coming to help bury Jesus. I will bet that Nicodemus had believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior, would believed in Christ as the Messiah and the Savior. So he is coming. Now, I want you to notice something that's amazing. It says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing this mixture of myrrh and aloes. You remember that's what the stuff that they anoint a body with? Notice a hundred pounds weight. I mean, you may have picked up a 50-pound sack or something. You know, so let me pick this big old sack up. How about a hundred pounds of something? You remember when Mary broke this little bottle of, of myrrh and poured it over Jesus' feet and head, and it was a little small bottle, and they said it was worth about a year's wages? What do you think a hundred pounds cost? This might be four or five pounds, and it was a year's wages. What do you think a hundred pounds 
might cost. This man, Nicodemus, brings a hundred pounds of myrrh and alloys. I was talking in between the services, and I said, hey, you know, I've read that the hundred pound weight was what they brought to bury the kings. And it could be Nicodemus was coming to say, I believe he's the king, and I'm bringing the hundred pound weight. We just don't know. And so look what happens. It says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Let me, let me show you what it looked like and where they buried him because they, they, they didn't take it. If you, if you look down, it says they took the body of Jesus, wrapped it in the linens and, and as the burial custom and put him in a tomb. Um, that's, that's a tomb that's in the... This would be for a wealthy person. A person who was not wealthy, they may have to dig a hole in the ground and put the body down in it. Sometimes they would go to a side of a hill, dig out the side of the hill and put the body in it. If you were wealthy, you might even have a tomb like this in which there was the entrance to go into the tomb. There's the stone. There's a place to roll the stone and and to shut it all up. And if you looked inside, if you would go inside, there would be a a platform right there, a place that they would lay the body, and they would wrap him up, uh, wrap the body up, and then they would anoint the body over a period of time until the body was all bones. Then they would take the bones, put them in a box called ossuaries, and sometimes you had 10 or 12 people in one box, and then they would lay the box in the tomb. And anytime somebody died, they would lay them out until their body were just bones, and they'd put it all together. This man named Joseph of Arimathea, he's wealthy, and he has a tomb right there. We're going to see in just a minute where it is. And, and so that's what he does. And if you look at verse 40, it says he took the body, wrapped it with the spices. That's the burial custom. So they took the body of Jesus, bound him in linen wrappings with the spices as his burial custom. And it goes on to say, and now in the place where he was crucified, close to the place being crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever laid. Nobody's ever been in There's no other bodies in there. There's nothing else in there. It's just an empty tomb. Now, we're gonna, we know that from some other places, this belongs to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea doesn't live in Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea lives in Arimathea, which is 20-something miles away. Why would he have a tomb in Jerusalem? Some said that before all this happened, he and Jesus maybe had talked, and Jesus said, Prepare a place for me. Who knows? We know that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body, they wrap him up in the spices, and they go to a garden tomb which nobody had ever been in, and they put him there. And they put him there. And it goes on to say, now, therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, day before the Sabbath, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now go back to Matthew And we'll see what happens. And look at verse 59. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now he doesn't tell us, Matthew doesn't tell us anything about Nicodemus. He doesn't tell us any of those kind of things. And it goes on and says, and he laid it in his own new tomb. His own new tomb. New. New as far as time is concerned. So maybe he just bought this recently to have it ready for Jesus. I don't know. We don't know. It says, He laid his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went 
away. This is another one. This one doesn't have the groove, but this is that people would go in, put the bodies in there, and they would roll the stone. Now, you know why they have the stone. I've had some people say, well, why do they have the stone? Some people say, so that people won't go in there and steal anything out of there. But probably the real reason is so the animals won't get in there and eat the bodies. So they just keep everything out until there's nothing left, basically. So it says, he put them, rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, and went away. And, And I want you to understand something. We're not through yet, but notice this. This fulfills Scripture. Isaiah 53, 9 says he would be buried with the rich. He's buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Every prophecy concerning Jesus Christ's first coming was fulfilled exactly. Every prophecy of Jesus Christ's second coming will be fulfilled exactly. Every prophecy, every promise that we see in the Scripture will always come True. Now, we got one more thing. Look what we see. Verse 61. And Mary Magdalene was sitting there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the graves. What, why are they watching? Why did they go? Why did they follow? Why did they see where they put the body? Because their plan is this. They're going to wait till after these two or three days pass, after this Sabbath day, and then after the other Sabbath day, because after the other Sabbath day will be the first day of the week, which will be Sunday. And they're going to go out to the tomb on the first day of the week to anoint the body. Remember, they've already anointed it once, but they're going to go back over and over to anoint the body until there's nothing but bones. That's the plan. Well, we see this. Jesus has died. The proof that he died, they buried him. We're going to see that Jesus is going to rise from the grave, and the proof that he rose is they saw him, and we're going to see that. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the one who not only paid for sin, but conquered death. Death is not the end. Next time, we're going to see what what the religious leaders do. He's dead. He knows, they know he's in a tomb. They go to Pilate and they say, the deceiver said he would rise after three days. Now, the disciples aren't even thinking that, but the religious leaders are. And they said, let's seal the tomb so that they won't come take the body away and tell everybody he rose from the grave. And so Pilate says, seal the tomb. We'll talk about that next time. Death is not the end. Let me tell you, you can seal the tomb, you can put guards there, you can do everything. Nothing could stop Jesus Christ from rising from the grave because he conquers death. Let me give you some applications first. Let's realize that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world. When we look at Jesus' death on the cross, we can say there's sadness because he died, he died for us. But the truth is this, he is the satisfactory payment not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Every one of us in this room, every sin we've ever done or ever will do has already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the payment for all the sins of the world. Jesus' death paid for sin. And so sin is really is not, is not the issue. Uh, he has paid for it all. And Jesus' resurrection conquers death. So his death paid for sin. His resurrection conquers death. That's why we always say the good news is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you only say the good news is Jesus died on the cross, you got half of it left out. The first half is he died. The second half is he rose. If you don't have the rising, 
You don't have any of it. That's what 1 Corinthians says. It says if he didn't rise from the grave, you got nothing. So when Jesus died to pay for sin and he rose to conquer death, realize that Christ has paid for the sins of the world. His death paid for sin. His resurrection conquers death. Second thing is let's, let's not keep our relationship with Jesus Christ a secret. That means when we're around people and the people that know us and our neighbors and our friends and all that, we need to tell them. Joseph didn't keep, he kept it a secret all the way up to the end, and then he and Nicodemus went and got the body, and people, they began to know about him right there because of what he did. In there is our lives. Let's let people know who we are. Let's do what? Let's live out as a child of God. Let's walk worthy uh, to, to our calling. Let's walk worthy of our calling. Let's, let's don't be, let's not be secret believers. Don't be a secret believer. Stand strong. When the opportunity comes, just say, oh, by the way, I, I mean, I don't know what you believe, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he died on the cross and rose again, and I have trusted in him to give me eternal life. I know he is my Savior. He is the Savior of the world, and he is the one who gives life. Be ready to tell people who he is. Finally, trust the word of God. Think about it. All the prophecies came through. Think about it. It said, not a bone would be broken. Not a bone was broken. It said he'd be pierced. He was pierced. It said that he would be buried with rich. He was buried with rich. The Bible, uh, Isaiah 53 talks about he was wounded and bruised. He was wounded and bruised. And Isaiah says, like a sheep led to a slaughter, he opens not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. I mean, it's just on and on and on. Every prophecy came true. And every prophecy and every promise will come true. And so just remember this. God's word is always true. We talked about it in Grow Group. This is the word of God. It is alive, it is powerful, it is sharpening to its sword. It never comes back void, accomplishes its purpose. It is profitable for us, for reproof, for correction, for training, so that we can grow as believers. This is the word of God. You must know it, you must apply it, and you must pass it on to others. It is vital. It tells us everything we need to know. It is the word of God. It is always true.